three years ago, um, Christine and I, we visited a friend, a good friend in Hobart. And um, he recommended a cafe to us, which is right in the center of Hobart. And it's run by a Christian. And um, when we went into the cafe, there was this flyer which caught my attention. Because it had these big letters written on it, um, capital letters. And it said, God hates religion. And I... Actually, I think it says Jesus hates religion. So it caught my attention. I grabbed it. I took the letter. I turned it around. And it turned out to be one of these gospel tracts, right? And in it, it um, explains that being religious, um, following Christian rules and rituals, being a ritual, like a, like a ritual list, if you want to say that, um, it doesn't save you from God's judgment, in fact, it was quoting Jesus who said to the most religious people of his time, to the Pharisees, he said to them, you're a brood of vipers, you're evil people. Because, see, these people, they were religious, yes, but in a bad sense, because their hearts were not invested. They thought they could earn God's favor by following these rules, by doing supposedly good works, but instead, the tract said, God hates this kind of religion. Because their hearts, you see, they were, they were not invested, but infested. They were infested by sin. And um, they acted out of an impure heart. And God is never pleased with that. So in our passage today, the people of Haggai's time, they had a very similar problem. They were very diligent in building the temple, but their work wasn't pleasing to God. And so today I want to show you two things. First, why our works cannot please God. And second, why our works can please God. Now you might say this sounds a bit like a contradiction, right? But let's wait till the end and we will see about it. But for now let's concentrate on why our works, can, our works cannot please God. So come with me to chapter 2 in Haggai, in verse 10, that's where we are. And um, three months have now passed since the first message of Haggai. So it's about two to three months since the people started the work on the temple. And they're actually doing quite well. They've finished gathering all the wood from the mountains, all the material they needed for the temple. And just as God told them to, they obeyed his voice from chapter 1. They did exactly what he said. Um, and then now they are starting to put every stone, stone upon stone, to build this temple. They're very diligent in their work, but there's a problem. Their hearts are not invested in this project. Their motivation is wrong. They start to think that as long as they do God's work, building his temple, everything should be fine. Building the temple becomes sort of like a worship for them. In their minds, it's almost like building the temple makes them holy. They thought by mere touching the temple, being involved in good works of building it, somehow holiness, cleanness would be rubbing off on them so that they would be holy people, clean people in God's sight. But that's far from the truth because God isn't pleased with their work. No, says God, I will use my prophet Haggai once more to convict you. But this time I will use my law to do this. 
You remember how Paul said in, in Romans 3.20, he says, through the law we become conscious of our sins. And you see, the law is like a teacher. It shows us our sins. And Haggai is doing exactly that now. He's using the law as a teacher to convict these people. And he is addressing those who are normally responsible for that, right, for, for those kinds of issues. In verse 1, you see he's addressing the priests, uh, those who are responsible for the religious teachings and those who are, have the oversight of the sacrificial system. And God tells Haggai to ask them two questions. So have a look at verse 12 again. If someone carries consecrated or holy meat in the fold of their garments, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated or holy? The priests answer no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled or unclean um, by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled or unclean? Yes, the priests reply, it becomes defiled or unclean. So we have two scenarios here, right? First, we have this holy meat, which is carried in a pocket of a garment, and it will be used for sacrifices later. But the idea is this. If the garment with the meat in it touches the food, the holiness does not spread to the food. Now, the food does not become holy or food or set apart for God by just touching the garment with the meat in it. No. And the priest, they, they answer this question correctly. They show their knowledge about this, and they know that holiness doesn't spread like this. But what about uncleanness, says Haggai, the second scenario? Can uncleanness spread? If a man is defiled by touching a dead body and then touches the food, is the food then unclean? The priests say, yes, it is. And again, they answer correctly because they know the scriptures They know that Leviticus 22 actually says, whatever this man will touch, it will become unclean. So you see, holiness does not spread, but uncleanness does spread. And having heard this confessed out of their own mouth, Haggai now applies this principle to all the people. In verse 14, have a look at it. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and with this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there, and he's, in this moment he's probably pointing to the altar, which is standing right in front of this project, this construction site. And he's saying whatever they do, whatever they offer there is defiled or unclean. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying all the people, the whole nation are defiled, unclean. There's no exception to that. It includes the priests as well as the workers on the temple. They're considered unclean like someone who touched a dead body. And this uncleanness, this defilement, it's spreading. It's spreading and it's contagious like a disease. All the works of their hands, everything they touches is infested. Even the temple and the altar itself, stand, which stands in front of it, it's, it's infested where the, the priests bring the sacrifices, the offerings. It's all contaminated, unclean, filthy in the sight of God. And you might ask, why is that? Aren't they doing exactly what God told them to? Aren't they building his temple? What more does God want of them to be pleased? Well, the answer to this can be illustrated by the book of Genesis. So let me do that with the book of Genesis. In chapter 4, we have these two brothers, Cain and Abel, right? 
Cain is a worker of the field, a farmer, and Abel is a worker of sheep. He is a shepherd. And they both bring their sacrifices to God at the right time, when God told them to. But God only accepts Abel's offering. And Cain's offering is not pleasing to him. Why is that? What made Abel's offering better? Well, the writer of the Hebrews tells us in Hebrew 11, verse 4. Let me read it to you. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain. By faith, he was commanded as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. You see, what made the difference was faith. Faith in God made all the difference. They both brought their offerings. They both obeyed God. But only one of them had faith in God. Only Abel's heart was filled with this faith when he brought his offerings to him. And this is the same issue with the people in Haggai. In fact, it's, it's the same issue with all the people in the Old Testament. You know, they had all these rules and um, this ceremonial law, when to sacrifice and how to sacrifice things. And just imagine that for a moment. Um, if you were ceremonial unclean, either you had a disease or you were sinning before, you had to come to the priest to bring an offering to the priest, and the priest had to sacrifice this animal and on an altar. And then the whole point of it is that these people, they had to trust in God, in this system that God gave them. They had to trust in God that he would accept this animal to appease his wrath. They had to trust that God would declare them clean again. So you see, the people in the Old Testament, they had to come to the priest to the altar with faith in God, just like Abel. But if you take away this faith component, this faith in God, you end up with Cain's offering. And the people in our passage, they are much more like Cain. Um, they, they did the work on the temple, yes. They obeyed God's word, yes. But they did it with a wrong heart attitude, without faith in God. Their hearts were not invested in it, you see. They, they, they did it out of a blind obedience. And like all of us, their hearts were unclean, tainted with sin. And so God is not pleased with their works. God doesn't even call them his people. Do you see that in verse 14? No, he calls them these people. Their estrangement with God is deeper than their first thought. The mere presence of a building doesn't make them God's holy people. No, God demands a genuine change of heart and life, and not just an outward conformity. God says to them, even your best works, your righteous deeds, your work on the temple even, they are all filthy rags to me. It's an abomination to me. Why? Because your hearts are not invested but infested. They are unclean and they make everything else unclean. So the real issue is a heart issue. And that's why this term, give careful thought, comes up three times in our passage. Do you see that in verse 15 and twice in verse 18? And we have seen it before twice in chapter 1 in verses 5 and 7, right? Give careful thought has the same meaning here as in chapter 1. It means set your hearts. So you could say... At the heart of our passage is a heart issue. And that's why we cannot please God with our works. God said, 
Be holy, for I am holy. But we are unclean. We're defiled from the inside, you see. And let me illustrate this a bit further. I can't do it as good as uh, Daniel did this morning, but um, think of it like a bucket of water. If you put a tiny drop of oil into it, the whole bucket is contaminated, right? And it, isn't that interesting? It, it doesn't take any effort to make something unclean, but it takes a huge effort to make something clean again. Think about that bucket, how many buckets you would need of water to make it clean again. But you see, the problem of our hearts is even worse than that. Because by nature, at your birth, your heart is contaminated. We are children of wrath, says Paul. And it's contaminated. Our heart is contaminated to such a degree that you can do all the works, the good works in the world. And it wouldn't make any difference. It will not become clean. But you know the worst thing about this contamination, this uncleanness, this sin? The worst thing about it is this, that we love it. We love to sin. That means not only can we not clean ourselves, we wouldn't even try to make it clean again. Because by nature we love darkness rather than light. And even as Christians we continue to sin, don't we? Because think about it, we continue to sin even though we know it's bad for us and for other people. We, we continue to sin even if it's bad for our health, if it's bad for our character, if it's bad for people around us. We know this, but we continue to sin. Why? Because our hearts are still contaminated and affected by sin. And it blinds us to the truth. And sin blinded also these people in Haggai's time. God says in verse 15 and 17, 15 to 17, look back at the days before you built the temple, how I struck you with blight, with mildew, with hail. He struck all the works of their hands, so much so that they only produced 50% of the harvest, grain harvest probably, and 40% only of the wine harvest. And I, I mean, you probably know it better than I do, but how devastating this must have been. And this went on for 15 years. God says, look at the past and learn from it. It's only been two or three months since you started working on the temple. And before that, the harvest was devastating. You just barely survived. And don't forget how I judged you, God says. But have a look at the end of verse 17. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. No, they didn't return themselves because they were blind. They couldn't return on their own. They needed God, God's help. Don't you start to love these people? I mean, first God needed to redirect their priorities in chapter 1, as we have seen. So they built God's house instead of their own mansions. Then a month later in chapter 2, as we have seen, God needed to encourage them to keep on going for the work, to look at God's glory. And now they need another correction because they're going off track again. Because they worship God with a, not with a pure and sincere heart. No, they do it without a faith. But rather than just pointing fingers at them, we should actually look at ourselves. Um, so let me ask you, is your heart invested in God? Or is it infested by something else? Are you worshipping him in spirit and truth? Why are you here this morning? 
Is it because you have always done this? Is it because you grew up in a Christian family, in a home, and it's just, yeah, going, going to church on Sunday is just what you do? Or is it because you think you are doing God a favor when you come to church? Doing Him a favor by your mere attendance? You know, the hard reality is this. You can be in church, you can be in church today, but not in Christ. What makes all the difference is faith. Faith in Christ. So do you have that faith? Are you born again? Do you know God personally? Do you have a relationship with God? You know, you can do all sorts of things, good works in the world. You can even support the church financially, being involved in building God's temple, His church. But in the end, the question is always the same. When you die... No one will ask you about your works. There will be only one question. And that question will be, have you believed? Have you done all these things in your life because you had a genuine faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? A genuine faith, not in what you have done, but in what He has done for you. Faith in His life, in His death, and in His resurrection. So do you believe in all this? With your heart? And is this faith, a faith in Christ, is this what is driving you to do good works? Is this what is driving you to do all the things in your life? Because if not, let me tell you this. There's a message for God for you today. You must be born again. You have to be born from above by the Holy Spirit. So I urge you, cry out to God. In the name of Jesus Christ, cry out for his mercy, repent of your sins and ask for his forgiveness. Because no one in this room today can be saved by his works. We are only saved by grace alone, through faith alone and in Christ alone. But you might say now, I believe all this. But you see, I'm still sinful. So how can I have an assurance that God is really pleased with me? And this brings us to our second part for today. How then can we do anything that is pleasing to God? After all, we are just humans, right? And no one is perfect. And even Christians continue to sin as we have just seen. So surely our hearts are still impure. But if they are impure, how then can we do anything that is pleasing in God's sight? Well, what is needed today is the same that was needed in Haggai's time. And we have seen it already in chapter 1. What was it that stirred them up? Stirred up their hearts? Have a look again at chapter 1, verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and they began to work. You see what is needed is God. What is needed is God's work in us. God himself has to intervene and to change their hearts and their attitudes. And it's the same, it's not just the Old Testament, it's the same in the New Testament. Listen to Paul, because you're going through Philippians at the moment. Listen to this, chapter 2, 12, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but more, much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. And for what? Listen to this. For his good pleasure. You see, you can please God with your works, because it is he himself who is working in you. But that means we cannot become lazy and not work at all for him. No, he commands us to work for him with a holy fear and reverence in our hearts. And God needs to remind us again and again of this truth, because we are not different from these people in the Old Testament. We are prone to forget and prone to deceive ourselves. And so we need his help, we need his grace, we need to understand that we are dependent on him. And ultimately what we need is faith, faith in God, and trust in him that he will be the one who will bless our works. God says to these people, you didn't turn back to me in verse 17. No, it wasn't you who did that. So you should continue in it, he says. You should work as you started with the temple, on my initiative. Continue like that, but you need to work with your hearts being invested in it. Work with faith, work with reverence and fear in your heart. It's not about the works itself, you see, but it's it's about the right attitude of your heart. I don't want you to be blindly following me, says God, because I don't need anything from you. What I want you to do is trust in me. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's the right heart attitude. And we can see what that leads to. And what that means in the last two verses. Have a look at verse 18 and 19. From this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought. Set your heart to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Again, set your heart Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. You see, what is needed is a change of heart. And what they needed also was faith in God. Why? Because this message, it comes in December to them. It's when there's no seed in the barn left anymore. Why? Because the seed is already in the ground ready for the next harvest, which will come in a couple of months' time. And so you could be the best farmer in the world, but you wouldn't be able to predict the outcome of this harvest because it's way in the future. You couldn't, you couldn't see it, but what you could see is you could, the only thing you could really do is you could look back and you could see 15 years of drought. But God says, I want you to look forward to the harvest to come. But you need to look forward with faith in me. You need to trust in me and believe my word because the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they are essential foods. And in the end, the outcome of the harvest could be a life or death situation for these people. But God says, trust my word and have faith. Because what does God promise them? Have a look at verse 19 again. From this day on, I will bless you. So what is needed to receive God's blessing? To have a God who will bless our works and be pleased with them? It, was, it is what has always been needed. Whether in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, doesn't matter. It's faith. It's trust in God. Faith that our works, even our best works, are solely dependent on Him and on His blessing. 
But we have one big advantage, right, compared to these people in the Old Testament. We don't have to come and bring sacrifices again and again to be cleaned, cleansed by in, in God's sight. No, we can look at Christ in faith. We can look at the cross in faith. And we see what he has done. That he was the once and for all sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. And you, you, you remember how we said that um, holiness does not spread? That's not 100% true. Not even for the Old Testament, I tell you. I mean, if you're interested, look into Leviticus 6.27 when you have time. Because the holy sacrificial meat actually spreads only from one object to the second, but not further. But if you look at Christ, we see multiple times in the New Testament how he heals people by mere touch. And he doesn't become unclean. He doesn't. But these people, they become clean. They get healed. And some of them... Twofold. Here's one example. In Luke 8, Jesus heals this woman. Very familiar story. This woman who was bleeding for 12 years. She was considered an outcast. Couldn't live with the community. But she touches Jesus' garment. Only his garment. And her bleeding immediately stopped. But there's more to it. Because Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This woman was healed twice, you see, physically, but also spiritually. She has faith in Christ, and Jesus calls her daughter. That means she is reborn. She is a child of God now. She's adopted into God's family. And so she's not just physically healed, but her sins are forgiven. And so as Christians, we have the same privilege. We have forgiveness in Christ. And when we do our works, yes, they are not perfect. Yes, they come from an unclean heart. And yes, we continue to sin. But if you are in Christ, you are already forgiven. And even more than that, because you have become a child of God. And what this means is this. When God looks at you and you are in Christ, he doesn't see your unclean heart. It's like as if God is looking at you and he's looking through a glass And if you are in Christ, if you are underneath this glass, what he sees is Christ's righteousness. He doesn't see your unclean heart. He sees his righteousness. And you become as if you are clean, with a clean heart. But there's more going on even inside of us because God also gave us his spirit. And his spirit is working in us and is cleaning us from the inside. And so when God looks at us, He actually sees himself. He sees himself working in us and shaping us and molding us more into the image of Christ. So all of this should really stir us up, awake us, arouse us to look forward to the great harvest when Christ returns. But until then, we should do God's will. We should do his work. And we should build his church. But not like the Pharisees who did it out of blind obedience. Now, we should be like this woman who was bleeding for 12 years. We should do it with faith in Christ and with a heart that is not infested, but invested. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this uh, message that you brought to us through the word of Haggai. Father, we pray that this message 
would not just be head knowledge for us, but it would target our hearts, our minds, and our wills. So, Father, we thank you that you are at work in us, that you have forgiven us, that we are forgiven sinners standing here with God looking at us through Christ and seeing us as his people, as children of God. So, Father, may this spur us on to live all the more for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.